Do you mind if I smoke? It won't affect the test. All right, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, including the killing jar. I'd take him to the doctor. You're listening to a podcast. Suddenly, you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. Which podcast? It doesn't matter. Just answer the questions, please. Which podcast? Um, now playing the movie review podcast hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Brock. The movie series being reviewed is the Philip K. Dick series with such classic films as Blade Runner, Total Recall, and Minority Report. I go to nowplayingpodcast.com every Friday to download a new episode of the series. You hear a warning that these podcasts will be full of spoilers. I hit pause, watch the movie, and then listen to the podcast. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page photo of a naked woman. Shh, with the questions. The podcast is starting. Today we're talking about A Scanner Darkly, starring Keanu Reeves, Robert Downey Jr., Woody Harrelson, Winona Ryder, and directed by Richard Linklater. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A.? And this is Jacob, or is it Arnie? Or, or maybe it's Marjorie. <laughs> Not quite. Did you ever think that perhaps now playing is like just one schizoid voice actor that does all the personalities? I, I just blew everyone's mind, I know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like we're all, I, I'm just like one dude sitting here with a headset arguing with myself. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's what this could be. And then. That's how I felt watching this movie. So this is a really interesting series, I have to say. This Philip K. Dick series is unlike any other series we've ever done here at Now Playing, not only because we have just a bountiful, plentiful amount of A-list and A-list stars coming through here, whereas when we have other series, eh, as it goes on, we kind of lose stars, or they're fading stars. But here we keep getting amazing casts, for better or for worse. And then we also have the ability now to throw an animated movie into the mix. And just what an amazing thing to think about, just for a second. We're reviewing an animated film as part of this series. That just makes so much sense yet is so mind-blowing all at the same time. Because the first thing that crossed my mind as I was watching this movie, why make this anime? Why even make this choice? As the movie went on, with the hallucinations, with the bugs in the beginning of the movie, the whole thing, I'm like, okay, okay, but you could have done this with CGI. It was amazing that they chose animation. And as the movie went on, but I just thought, what an amazing choice to even think about animating this movie. The process for this animation is called rotoscoping, mm -hmm. and it was really designed in the 70s. I think part of the appeal that you would go this way is it harkens back to Ralph Bakshi and what he did with Lord of the Rings, the original Lord of the Rings. I don't know if too many people know about that movie now, but it was sort of the hippie version of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, in the rotoscoping, totally, it took me back to those old, you know, Wizards and Lord of the Rings, those old 70s Bakshi films. You know, Richard Linklater is somewhat of a hippie. I mean, he's, he's the Austin, Texas version of that. They've definitely got their own ideas down there, and I think... He probably grew up watching this stuff and thought it was really cool, and the novel itself was written in the 70s. There's a very 70s, even though this is a future, futuristic movie, there's a lot of retro going on here. There's a lot of stuff that feels like present day or even 20, 30 years ago. So I think that the style of animation, if we were talking about traditional Disney cell animation, I would be like you, Brock. I would be going, what TF? Right. Is this, but given that it's rotoscoping and it's retro and it looks so real and yet it's got this 
visceral quality. I found it really appropriate. I really dug it. And, and, and like you, I'm really impressed with how this series keeps reinventing itself. With every chapter, we're dealing with new cast, a different take on it, sometimes glossy Hollywood, sometimes indie. Now we got a drug film and an animated drug film at that. <laughs> yeah. How much fun is that? Yeah, you know, I remember seeing the trailer for this movie, and it was the animation that really got me interested in wanting to see this film. Because it, it, like you said, Stuart, it, it's, it's got this shiny gloss to it. It looks like it was something that was done on a computer, but it also harkens back to that old rotoscoping type thing. And you know what? This is my favorite Philip K. Dick novel. So I, I was super excited when this movie came out, super excited to watch it again for this uh, retrospective. Cool. In the novel, I recently just read it. I'm kind of covering everything that inspired the movies we're watching over at Books and Nachos. So if you're curious to know my thoughts in the novel, I'm not going to go into it here. But one thing that stuck out on me on, on more than one occasion was that the main character, when he was tripping on the main drug, the, the substance D drug, he talked about it being like walking around in jello and that the streets and the sky and all felt like jello. And there's a wobbling undulating quality to this animation that very much if not quite jello it definitely kind of captured the idea of a world off balance and i have to say that as the animation went on as the movie went on and on and on i really loved the choice that they went with animation the first thing i noticed was the animation as you just said wasn't solid and it wasn't as bad remember that show dr cats in the late 90s with the with the (laughs) wiggling it wasn't there you go it wasn't as bad as that but it certainly had that moving quality to it and that jello analogy is is a good one it was very interesting that's the truth like i would say 70 percent of this they did shoot this as a real regular film and camera movie mm-hmm. and then turned it over to the animators for a year and a half to do what they did to it for about 70 percent of it could exist as that but what's so neat is you're right when they take the artistic daring and all of a sudden you realize they could not have shot this normal or even with cgi and it had the same effect that by doing it this way even though many of the scenes 70 percent of the scenes didn't need animation to convey the drug state it really helps make it seamless when we do go into those visions and those other altered consciousness states so i think we should probably go into the plot summary now and then move on to our thoughts and, and ideas in the film. Well, I don't know that w- there's too much to go into the plot, or rather, I feel it's so conspiratorial. There's so mm-hmm. many forces twisting and turning and never feeling quite sure what you're watching. It would be difficult to go into too much depth. But I will say this. We are dealing with Anaheim, California, seven years in the future, which if we take that to mean from the time this movie was released, 2013. And we have an undercover narcotics cop named Fred who is posing as Bob Archer, an addict of the latest drug, street drug, part synthetic, part organic drug called Substance D. And it's really got a hook on the American populace. The statistic is 20% of the country is hooked on this drug and going downtime. It's a major epidemic. And to counter that, the government forces are doing everything they can with surveillance, cameras, and plants. Fred, posing as Bob Archer, is trying to break into the business and see where his contact, Donna Hawthorne, is getting her supply. She's a cokehead. She doesn't do too much substance D, but she has friends that supply, and he's hoping by romancing her, she's going to finally tell him where she gets her substance D from. Meanwhile, he's living in a house with two other can we say idiots (laughs) played by Robert Downey Jr. and Woody Harrelson. A lot of the movie is them 
philosophizing, dropping it out, to, and nearly dying, fighting, just really in the true tradition of a drug movie, going from states of funny to morbid to severe, turning on a dime. Eventually, Fred begins to, because he has to take substance D to integrate himself with these people, he really finds that the two lobes of his brain start competing with one another, that he's getting alternate messages from either side of his head about what's really happening. Contradictory, really. And by the end of it, he is so messed up, he is not even sure whether he is Fred or Bob Arctor. And neither do the people that he reports to. The narcotics covers only see him when he reports in a scramble suit that hides his identity behind a kaleidoscope of other different faces and images. Not only does he wear the scramble suit when he reports to his superiors, his superiors and everyone else at that facility are also wearing scramble suits, so you don't know who anybody is really there. So we'll talk about that in a minute. It's kind of a cool conceit there. Long story short, as he tries to penetrate the world of Substance D, he falls deeper and deeper into depression, into paranoia, and finally ends up at New Path, the one company that closes to have the answer on how to get people off Substance D, but is also theorized to be the people that actually grow the plant that creates Substance D. That concept is sort of brought up right at the end. I don't think we need to get into that right now, but that's the basic plot. Yeah, so where to begin with this one? There's so much going on here, but as as Stuart, you pointed out, it's pretty easy to follow on a basic level if you think about it. Well, you guys both read the book, right? Before watching the movie or after watching the movie? Before. Um, no. Um, I actually saw this movie in theaters when it came out in 2006. Ah. It's funny. It got booked in a big theater in L.A., I, I think they got the message that this was going to be like a minority report of a total recall. And I was the only person sitting in the <laughs> cinema dome. The only one. Me Are and my friend were the, only two, we were the only ones in the cinema dome, which is this massive, awesome screen in Hollywood. And I'm like, boy, they just didn't know what they were booking, did they? It was this trippy midnight movie pretending to be a big Hollywood science fiction Philip K. Dick thriller and it's certainly not that i think the thing that will take people by surprise if you've been following the series even this is the movie that really stops being an action science fiction story and really becomes much more contemporary and much more of a drama or at least a serial comedy i mean these guys are goofballs and and in their drug state they make you laugh, but truly, it's kind of a tragedy in the way that it all plays out. This is very peripherally science fiction. I mean, there's a few ideas like the scramble suit and, and a few things like that. And it's the same in the book. What I love, it's this kind of like alternative present where they're still driving regular cars. I mean, it's this really rundown version of Orange County. And if you're not familiar with Orange County, I love this vision of Orange County they have here because that's where Disneyland is. In, in real life, it's this very... Uh, upper class wealthy area and here you see it as it's just this run down city uh, full of junkies and so i love this kind of science fiction where it takes a few neat technology ideas but pretty much just tells a drama and that's what really drew me into not just the book but also this movie yeah, I, and I want to just say one more thing. I mean, I've always heard it referred to as Anna Slime. Anaheim <laughs> has the Disney side to it, but kind of like the whole plot here, there's a duality. There is a dark side to Anaheim. There is a lot of crime and gang violence. They got the Mighty Ducks, and they got the gang violence. A perfect place to set this, really. I thought I was very amused. And it's not L.A. 
people from LA and people from Orange County will tell you Anaheim is its own thing. It's even though we're neighbors, it's its own vibe and it's it's a perfect place to set this. I would just like to say that right off the bat, the reason that I went to the theater and to see this is I'm a big fan of Richard Linkletter. I love his movies. I, I've always liked independent cinema and he burst on the scene with Tarantino, with Robert Rodriguez. He was part of what was called the Sundance Gang. And in many ways, he's my favorite. He's not the most popular because the movies he deals with are kind of all talky. And you got to kind of like that. But I think the, the first couple of movies he put out are some of the best indie films of the last 25 years. He made a movie called Slacker, which is a movie that has no central character. It literally hops from person to person as they wander about through Austin, pontificating, sometimes amusingly, sometimes looking crazy. But really get creating the, the portrait of Austin, Texas. Dazed and Confused. I hope you guys have seen that movie. It's a really fun 70s drug comedy. And then he made a really good one-two romance with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy before sunrise and sunset. They're really great romantic pieces. He's really good with talk. He's one of the few directors I can think of that can just put people in a room, film it, and make it work. I think a lot of times, a lot of indie movies from the 90s really bore me that did that. They have no budget. They're static looking. And they're just, they're just bad. But he creates interesting characters and with a little money, with a lot of ingenuity, he's able to draw you in. And here he does it again. I mean, this movie basically takes place in a rundown house with crazy hippie people talking nonsense to one another, pretending or thinking they have aphids crawling all over them, just totally acting bug nuts. And he's able to bring us in partly because he's cast it so well and partly because he's got this device of this animation that really pulls you into the story and really makes you in, engaged, or at least I was very engaged with how this was presented. And if it was done by another director or without this animation, I wonder if it would have worked. He clearly had a vision of what he wanted to do. He had to know he was going to animate this before he shot it. I mean, it had to be. It had to be a conscious decision. It wasn't a fix it, right? He made another movie just like this, actually. It was called Waking Life. And it was sort of a philosophical pontification where this character sort of floats through dream states. There's really almost no plot. He just meets various characters who talk about un the universe and, and the big, deep questions. And, and the thing that holds you is how trippy the world is. It would cost $300 million to film at standard, but because they do the rotoscope, it mm -hmm. can look realistic and do trippy things all at, at once. And it was really the place where he got the germination of the idea of how this could be used to tell stories. That one was not a story, but here he's using it a little bit more. This is a little bit more of a narrative and he's learning how to apply the tricks to tell a more traditional story. I turned Waking Life off. I turned it off. The animation was bothering me. There was no plot or character I can get behind. And so I said, screw this. So with this one, obviously, I had a little bit more the opening scene with the guy with the bugs going all over the place. You get burst into the animation. You see the, the why the animation will work for the story he's telling with the bugs. It, it was kind of funny, that opening scene when he's trying to wash the bugs off, when the dogs had the fleas and the bugs and the whole thing. It really worked. This opening scene captured me as to what the heck is going Going on, and at the same time, helped me, the viewer who isn't used to this sort of animation, to get into what this movie will look like, what this movie is going to do, how the movie is going to use some of the animation techniques it has here in its palette. And I thought the movie opened up in a great way to help people get into this movie, unlike Waking Life. So I'm glad he opened the movie in the way he did. Yeah, I mean, Link Letters, some of them really are not plot driven at all. And, and I know sometimes people struggle with that, it, it doesn't always work. 
I would say most of the movies he's made, I have appreciated. Some I like more than others. I think the early ones are the best ones still. But I, I did like Waking Life, and I do like Scanner Darkly. And I wish he would continue to play with this animation style. Now, Stuart, do you, do you have any idea why? I know Charlie Kaufman wrote a, the original script for this movie. And mm-hmm. I would have loved to see a Charlie Kaufman Scanner Darkly. I mean, if you've <laughs> seen Kaufman's movies, this is what he's all about, the identity of the self. I mean, he really carries the spirit of Philip did. Yes, he's very inspired by him. I actually got the opportunity to meet him, and he talked about when he was writing it. He was coming off of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, a, a movie that he scripted, and he very much was excited about writing this project. I don't know why it didn't happen, but he was the original writer. Cool. That, that would have and, excited me. You know, Can we talk about the cast here? Because it's an awesome cast. I mean, if you're going to do a movie about junkies, why not use some actual junkies like Robert <laughs> Downey Jr. or Woody Harrelson? And I want to remind people, this is Robert Downey Jr. way before Iron Man, way before he became legit, Tropic Thunder, all of that. Now he's a big star, which just still blows my mind. But back then, he couldn't even be insured. You know what I mean? He couldn't even be insured on a project. They could barely cast him in a movie because he had had so many run-ins with the laws and drug testing. And God knows he probably had to pee into a cup after every take of this movie because he was unbankable. There was nobody that was going to touch him. He is the highlight of the film. Every moment he is on screen, I'm just blown away. I mean, it helps that he's the funny character, but he's just so much fun to watch in this movie. You know, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s performance, and this is going to sound cheesy, but it's absolutely true, it was so animated. It was so much fun to watch. And every time he was on the screen, I was loving it. Every moment he wasn't on the screen, I was waiting for him to get back on the screen. Stuart, I am not surprised Robert Jenny Jr. is the big star now. If you've seen his early work, you saw the talent there. His personal demons got in the way of him being a big star for his entire career, in my opinion. I've been a fan of his for a long, long time, way before Iron Man and Tropic Thunder. And I think that this performance shows people why. The guy knows how to act. The guy knows how to command your attention. Take the first scene he's in the diner. They animated this guy with the animation. But look at his hands. Listen to his takes. Look at his eyes. The performance is so amazing. But when you compare it to someone like Woody Harrelson's, who's seems like a cartoon. When I use the word animated in a cartoon, I'm not using them derogatory with Robert Downey Jr., but a little bit with Woody Harrelson. To me, I thought he was too over the top in his monologues. Sometimes I didn't always believe what Woody Harrelson was doing. I always believed what Robert Downey Jr. was doing. I didn't really connect as much with the Woody Harrelson as I did with Robert Downey Jr. And, and part of that is the character Robert Downey Jr. is playing is just more central to the story than the character that Woody Harrelson plays. He doesn't yeah. have a whole lot to do. You're He's right. there because, you know, Woody Harrelson is a known marijuana advocate and has done some trippy movies like Natural Born Killers. I'm sure he wanted to join the party here. And he's a good goof. He's a good foil for Robert Downey Jr. But make no mistake, Robert Downey Jr. is sort of the antagonistical character. He's the one that tries to put Bob Arctor behind bars by going to the police. There's some indication, more so in the book than there is in the movie, that he may actually be working to try and kill the Keanu Reeves character, Bob Arctor. And with Keanu Reeves, usually he's, he's someone that makes me not want to see a movie. I, I remember when The Matrix came out, I didn't see it till like nine months later because you had that commercial of Keanu Reeves going, whoa, after he dodges a bullet. I'm like, dude, I'm not seeing that movie. That looks stupid. And unless he's playing Ted Theodore Logan, I don't want to see Keanu Reeves in a movie. But I got to give it to him here. I, he plays a very low-key, spaced-out character, and I think he has a very limited range, and I think this movie 
fit that range for him, and he, and he did well in this movie. I think that is what has happened to Keanu Reeves. It's not that he became a better actor. He, God bless him, really tried to show some range in the 90s and do all sorts of things and prove that he can't do Shakespeare or period pieces. I mean, there was a lot of attempt to try and prove that he was an actor, and then he eventually realized, I am a surfer dude, and that persona can be used well in certain roles, and this is a perfect role for him. He is a character that is got a spaced out quality to him. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's essentially given the task to spy on himself. And I can believe that Keanu Reeves doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, I think <laughs> that that is part of his persona, that whoa that he has been playing since Bill and Ted serves him well here. And he blends in where he would normally be a problem in other movies. I found him an asset here. All right. I'm going to be the voice of dissent on this one. <laughs> we did a day Earth, the Day the Earth Just Still review back when we were doing two-person now playing short reviews. And you can find that review at nowplayingpodcast.com in the archives. And we talked about there how Keanu Reeves, you know, kind of gives robotic performances, how appropriate that he's playing an alien and that kind of crap. Like, we made stupid jokes like that. And I was thinking, hey, are these guys going to come in here and make, oh, Keanu Reeves, he always gives two-dimensional performances. Are we going to talk about how he gives two-dimensional performances in a cartoon? You two are saying he was great in this movie. All the problems I have with this movie and, and following the plot and all that kind of stuff, I think stem from Keanu Reeves. I got nothing but blank from Keanu Reeves' line readings and his facial expressions. When you see someone like Robert Downey Jr. in this role, in this movie, it it totally works. His character completely is there. But Keanu Reeves couldn't break through to me. So everything about this paranoia and he's confused about his real identity and all that kind of stuff, it took a lot of me figuring this stuff out because I wasn't getting it from him. I thought he was boring in this movie. I did not care for him. And he's the lead character in this movie. And this movie relies upon him. All the cool stuff about this movie, all the cool things about this plot, all the neat things about this movie hinge on him. And I needed someone more dynamic to give me a little bit more so I can get everything without me sitting there, pausing the movie, trying to figure out what's going on, rewinding it, trying to figure it out because I wanted so desperately to do it. So by the end of the movie, when I actually did all the work myself, I was able to enjoy it. Brock, he's playing a guy who's destroyed his brain on drugs. His yes. brain is literally fighting with each other. Yes. The halves of his brain. He can't play it like Robert Downey Jr. does. Yeah, he's not a charismatic character. He's not even meant to be a character. He is a blank. And I think Keanu Reeves plays blank pretty well. I th <laughs> he does blank wonderfully. And I hear, it, Jacob, you're absolutely right. He doesn't want to play it as wired, if you will, or whatever you want to call Robert Downey Jr.'s performance in this movie. This character cannot be that way. But there is somewhere in the middle, very close to what Keanu Reeves is doing, that needs a little more spark, a little more life, a little more of something that makes me, the viewer, want to watch it. And we may have a huge discussion on the forums about this, or people may agree with me, or they may disagree with me completely. But I found what he was doing here not compelling. There has to be a way to play a blank that's more interesting to me, because I didn't get that. I'll meet you at this point. Here's what I did want from Arctur, the character that I did not get. At a certain point, he's told by his superiors that Arctur is the bad guy in this house, and we need to watch him very, very closely, and you are going to have to watch him, not realizing or not caring that the person that they're giving this assignment to is Bob Arctur. 
And so Bob Arthur goes about a process in which he is watching hours and hours of videotape footage of what he's done. And he's so tripped out on drugs, he doesn't remember doing it or why he did it. He sees that Bob Arthur as detached from himself, Fred, the policeman. The problem I have with the movie is that I never believed that Bob Arthur was going to do bad. There's this implied idea that because he was messed up on drugs, he was capable of being a guy that was dangerous. And truly, Robert Downey Jr. is the dangerous one. He is just a junkie. I never got the sense that he was going to hurt anyone in the house or himself. And I think that that's a problem because the story is set up like he is the central bad guy. And is that the screenplay's problem or is that Keanu Reeves' performance problem? It's the choice of Philip K. Dick. I don't have the problem with the screenplay at all. This is the most faithful adaptation we have had of a Philip K. Dick work. This story, almost line for line, is identical. And while they leave little moments out, there's not a scene here that isn't in the book. That's great to hear because, again, I was interested in this story. But when I started rewinding stuff and trying to figure out was, well, doesn't he realize that's him? I didn't get that he was so strung out on drugs until later in the movie. So, like, it didn't all add up throughout the whole time. I wasn't brought in by what he was doing. And, Stuart, I I think it is a problem with the screenplay because the book, it's a more gradual realization. When Bob Arthur's told to spy on himself, he's like, oh, okay, you know, how am I going to get everyone out of the house where we can place the cameras in there? And it's as the book goes along, he becomes more and more detached, and it kind of messes with your mind as a reader because you're seeing this guy. Now he's, like, talking to Bob Arthur, like, in third person, and, he, like, he doesn't even know who the guy is. I thought the movie, because it has to fit within a certain time limit, you know, whether that's, you know, you can't really go over two hours, 20 minutes. That's probably where you want to get in. You're always going to have to cut stuff out. And so I thought they had to speed things up. And I was wondering... Yeah you know, how this would come off to someone who had not read it. So hearing you, Brock, it it sounds like you had to figure a lot of things out because and read between the lines because they did have to speed up the story here to get it into the movie format. You're absolutely right. Let me give you the the example uses perfect. When he was asked to spy on himself, what I wanted was just a little bit more of, well, how the hell am I supposed to do that? Because me, the viewer, is like, he was just asked to spy on himself and he's in a conundrum. But since maybe he was already playing the I'm so strung out or whatever, but at that point in time, we didn't know how strung out he was or given any indication that he was that far gone. So for me, the viewer, to figure that out later, I had to put pieces together. I had to go back and rewatch scenes because in my mind, I thought I was following it, but I was really confused by the performance of the actor in that I need a little bit more here to understand exactly what I'm watching here because what I think is going on is this, but I'm not getting that from him. And if that's the problem with the screenplay and their performance, well, there's nothing I can do about that. I'm not going to blame Keanu Reeves 100% on that, but I think that goes right into my point of I think you guys might be bringing in a little bit more from the outside source material to put the things together because for me, and I'm a pretty smart guy, I don't think it's completely spelled out as much as it should be. Now, I'm not saying a movie has to spell everything out. I think a movie like we watched, talked about Blade Runner and how artistic it was and how you can interpret things different ways and, and we discussed that and it was wonderful. So to me, it really needed to be a little bit more clearer and perhaps the actor could have helped me 
out there if the screenplay couldn't. I think it is similar to Blade Runner in that respect, that there is a high dependency on ambiguity, and there's not too much voiceover. There is some here. There is some dialogue in which the police detective is commenting on Arctur as he's walking around, and he's in his house, and he knows these scanners are all around, and he's wondering what they perceive and if they can perceive the way that he really thinks. Some of that stuff is there, but the ambiguity is very high here, and I think that you're right. It could cause a lot of frustration. One of the things that neither the source material or the movie really gets into much that I kind of wouldn't have mind seeing is who Fred was. Who is this police detective that decided to be a narcotics officer? We do have one beautiful moment where he is in the same house with his wife and his children, and it's a very wholesome, clean environment, and it quickly spins and he, it becomes the disheveled house, and the children become Robert Downey Jr. and Woody Harrelson, and he realizes this is the dark side. This is what my life has become. But I don't know if Fred was real. That's what I'm not sure about. We're led to believe at the beginning that Fred is a police detective pretending to be Bob Arctor, but now I'm not sure that this wasn't Bob Arctor wishing that he was Fred. I mean, I feel like in the end, ambiguity is so high, I would have liked a little bit more clues as to who the uh, quote-unquote original person was supposed to be. And you get this great line, though, where Fred, Bob Arctor, whoever he is at the moment, he asks Woody Harrelson and Robert Downey Jr., they're talking about being impersonators. And he says, how would you impersonate an undercover narcotic agent? Mm-hmm. Yes, which really yeah. gets to what you're saying, which which is like this big moment in the movie. And, and again, I wonder how you perceive that, Brock, because for me, having read the source material, you know, that's this big moment where you really start seeing this guy doesn't know who he is. He's really losing connection with reality. He doesn't know if he's a good guy pretending to be a bad guy or a bad guy pretending to be a good guy. You don't know what's going on at that moment. Yeah, it played both ways. Because I watched it twice. <laughs> it played both ways. The first time I was like, this guy is either trying to mind fuck these guys and try to like, you know, throw them off their trail. But then again, wait a second now. And then I was like, oh, I don't, I think it's more mental. So yes, the answer to your question is I, I saw it both ways. And then I came to the conclusion as I was finishing the movie, like, okay, he was a little bit out of it at that point. Stuart, what about the whole part of who is Fred and all that kind of thing? Are you implying that he's hallucinating the whole thing with Hank then? Because I don't buy that at all. I'm not saying that he wasn't working for the cops, okay. but we do find out, and I don't want to get into this until we're really at the end, okay. we do find out that the cops have been manipulating the situation to get the results that they want, that he thinks that he's reporting to them, but all they're really wanting him to do is set them up for what they have in mind, and they're not really telling him what the real operation is. He says repeatedly, you know, he's speaking at a like an Elks Club kind of thing uh, at the beginning. Uh, he's identifying as an undercover police officer who is a family man, wife and kids, and all of that. That really seems to be the figment of the imagination because other than this very brief twist and i love the way that it's animated and how it suddenly goes from day and happy and wholesome to dark and crazy friends and drugs and all of that i think that that is the fantasy i think that fred 
the good guy is the not real one, and that Bob Arctor is the person who has delusions of being a police officer. But the police officer is using that to their advantage by making him think he's a police officer by putting him in the scramble suit and having him do the surveillance and reporting back to Hank, etc. Possibly, yeah. I mean, it's it's open-ended. I think that there's room for that interpretation here. And certainly by not having any more details about what happened to this wife, what happened to this kid. Right. I thought I remembered that. That was the weird thing. Watching this movie again, I thought they came back to that at the end of the movie. I thought that we learned what happened to the wife and kids. If that did happen, they edited it from the version that I have watched. And and it, this movie is so trippy and you're not sure what you're watching so much that I probably just dreamed that. I probably just made that connection in my mind and never really saw it. But I was surprised that we never learned much about Fred, the police officer hero, and that this was much more a story about a junkie who mm-hmm. was being manipulated by the cops. Let's talk about that suit because we haven't got into that yet. But in the book, the suit is really more like a shadowy hologram around you. It's It obstructs you. People can't see your face, your butt. They can't see your body parts. They just see a holographic form of sorts. Here, this is a, a, a new conceit. The whole idea that it's millions of bits of different people all shimmering around almost like a Christmas tree. Every time they, he was in the suit, I was thinking of Christmas and Christmas lights. And we never can get a fix on who it really is. What do you guys think of that? I mean, I, I love this idea of the scramble suit where you have these undercover agents and they're so undercover, they can't even know who each other is. So they came up with this idea, you know, where they obscure each other's identity, which totally plays into the themes of this story. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have ever read the New York trilogy by Paul Auster. Very similar. It's all crime detective fiction where these private eyes, they get so absorbed in investigating these other people's lives. They totally forget who they are and, and become these other people. And I thought the scramble suit was a great representation of that when, you know, just the mindset of anyone that has to go undercover and become this new person or, or an actor that has to become this new person. It, it's a great visual of what's really going on in their mind as that's happening. I thought it was a really cool image. I thought it was a lot of fun to see it in action. I thought the idea and how they use it when all the cops don't know each other is really a lot of fun. I didn't understand how you could eat the pills through the hood. I was wondering that too. They smoke and they, when they take it off and we see him take it off multiple times, it's like a hood and robe. And yet when they're wearing it, they can still eat and pop pills and smoke cigarettes in it. And, and like I said, in the novel, it's not a fabric. It's not any, it's a hologram that obstructs you. I got very much the sense that it was clothing that does cool lighting techniques. <laughs> but it's like it, a big membrane that goes, I think it was just a goof in the movie that they just didn't think about it that much. And Well, if they did it once, Jacob, if they did it one time, I would have been like, okay, they didn't think that through. But they did it two or three times when he's yeah, taking the pills. Tough. And so for me, I was like, what the hell? And that's just one more thing to me as the viewer who is desperately trying to follow what's going on. They're confusing me. And there's no reason to do that. Have him pull it up a second and throw him in, you know? But then, of course, when he's not in the suit... There's no problems. Anyway, it was really confusing. But you're asking about the suit and the idea behind the suit? I thought it was really cool. I think they took the suit idea and took an extra couple of steps where they had the identities being completely protected from each other. And it brings in some great tension, like uh, when Keanu Reeves is Fred and his superior, Hank. Fred walks into the room and Jim Barris, who's played by Robert Downey Jr., is sitting there narking on all of them. 
Like it really <laughs> okay. creates some great tension because Barris doesn't know that it's it's Bob Arctor sitting there looking at him. And, and so I just love the the play there where no one's really sure who anyone is, and it just creates some great drama and tension in the movie. And then and then that scene gets even better is after they take him away, the superior asks Keanu Reeves, "What do you think of his evidence? What do you think of it?" And Keanu is forced to say. He's still not sure of it or not. It should be said that Robert Downey Jr. is making the claim that Bob Arctor and his girlfriend are terrorists. They're a terrorist cell, and not only are they dealing with drugs, but they're going to commit atrocities. And Fred is not even so sure about who he is when he's Bob Arctor that that isn't true. He's maybe I am, you know, and so he's sitting there going, wow, I could be actually be a terrorist. And then his superior is the one saying, nope, this is totally fake. This cannot be real. And I'm going to go ahead and spoil it right now. I wasn't sitting in the movie asking who the superior was, but we do find out who it is, and it's the girlfriend. It's his cokehead girlfriend, Donna. And I thought that that was a great twist on it that I totally didn't anticipate seeing coming. It's particularly clever because usually in Philip K. Dick's stories, I don't know if you guys notice or not, women don't play a big part in it. They're usually temptresses and background characters, but they really don't accomplish much, and they usually aren't portrayed as heroic. And what a nice twist to see that the cokehead girlfriend who doesn't like to be touched is actually trying to protect herself and her true identity from being his superior. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great reveal, and it's been a while since I read the book. I had totally forgotten about that twist. I was surprised when I watched the movie again. It's a little different in the book, too. It's never revealed that she's the superior. It's just revealed at a certain point they're stopped by the police, and they find out she's an undercover cop. It's not like Arctor ever reported to her. She was just in on whatever is going on that he will never understand. And, yep. and there are some cool little hints that are dropped. They they talk about, oh, are there female narcs? At mm-hmm. one point, they, they say Fred could actually be Donna. I mean, there, there's some laughs. great little yeah, hints. He so, laughs yeah. at that. Yeah, it's set up very well, and and I I didn't see it coming. Even the second time, four years later, I had forgotten it and was pleasantly surprised when they have what we think is Bob Arctor changing, and then the hood comes off, and it's Winona Ryder, and we're like, whoa, what is going on? And we finally put it together. Guys? Uh Uh-oh. What now, Brock? I'm not trying to dog it. I'm just saying I got it. I think it was fun. I thought it was a good idea. I have in my notes about halfway through the movie, I think Donna's a cop. And then right before, I'd say about a scene, this beginning of the scene, when right before she reveals that she's Hank, it hits me that she's Hank. So I didn't figure it out miles away. But before the big reveal, I had a huge hunch. But I do agree with you both that what a great idea for that reveal, that it was a really clever idea. Unfortunately for me, maybe because I've seen too many movies or maybe because my when I'm in this kind of mode, when I can't sit back and completely let myself get taken in by a movie, I start to try to figure things out. What I, one of those things I have in my head is when I'm sitting there trying to figure out a movie, it's not captivating me and therefore it's it's a flaw in the movie. That's how I sometimes see movies. I know a movie's bad, but if I'm taken in by it, I don't care. You know, I give that movie those conceits because I had so much fun watching it. This one, I guess I was trying to figure out so much that it did occur to me that she was the superior eventually, but definitely occurred to me that she was a cop. Well, here's the thing. I don't think I ever thought that the movie was going to tell me what was going on. Mm -hmm. I gave up on the idea very early on that any of this would make sense. I had a feeling, given Philip K. Dick and the nature of it, that this was going to be a work about 
conspiracy. And the only way that a conspiracy can still be mysterious is if you never reveal the, the root. Like I said, I never thought that we would learn who he was reporting to. That was never a thought in my mind. I never right. thought we would get to who was Donna's supplier for Substance D. It was really a much more of a non-plot-driven character piece about what it's like to be hooked on drugs. And in drug movies in general, you usually get this band of characters that have incredibly fun highs in the beginning and it's a lark and it's a good time and they're subverting authority and we enjoy watching them. And then traditionally in the second half, somebody dies and it all goes to shit and maybe the lead character comes out of it and maybe they don't. Right. That was the movie I was watching. I wasn't really watching it to find out twists. I didn't know there would be twists. Yeah, I understand that. I agree with Stuart. I wasn't watching this as a conspiracy movie. Yeah, there was this whole detective part, but I was approaching this as a drug movie. That's what this was to me. You know, most of this movie is just these weird scenes where these people just blown out of their mind. You have this whole discussion about Barris, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, walks in with his bike. And you have this whole scene about how many gears or on the bike if he got ripped off. I didn't really felt paid off in the in the movie. Maybe you could give me your opinion, Brock. I mean, it, it, it plays a bigger role in the in the book. Okay. Um, but you have a lot of scenes like this. I, I love the joint scene where they walk into uh, Bob Arctor's house and they find this lit joint and they go off on this whole paranoid rant about how they have to sell the house. And when they sell the house, should they mention that there might be planted drugs in there because that could actually <laughs> increase the like I the value of the house. I, yeah. I, I was never a junkie, but I've had friends that have drug issues. And that kind of paranoia, that's what it is, man. And, and so, like, I got caught up on in, in the drug part of this story and just watching these people that, that just have wasted their minds and just have a very different reality than most people do. I was more consumed in just, I guess, the character portrayals and watching this as a character story and just showing people as they are. I think we're in good hands. I think it helps that the casting of this, particularly Downey and, and Harrelson, who seem to come from a place of authority on drug addiction, really know how to captivate us and draw us into these characters. It would be no fun if these weren't stars doing great riffs. I mean, I think that it really helps that we're watching who we're watching. I do agree with you. There is almost too much of this futzing around without payoff, though. And, and I'll give you one that bothers me. Is early on, it set up the fact that there is another friend who we really haven't talked about. His name's Charles Freck. Yep. And he is the one that's convinced that there are aphids crawling all over him and his dog. And he's always worried about bugs and collecting them in jars. And he is interested in Donna. He knows he's Bob Arctor's girl, but he wants to get her. And so the Robert Downey Jr. character says, well, you know how to get her for three bucks. You sell her Coke. And he has this crazy scheme like he does many times throughout the movie of how you can take regular household ingredients like an aerosol can and so on, mix it up in a bag and throw it in a freezer and it will somehow reduce chemically into <laughs> cocaine. Funny setup. But where was the punchline? They never sold her the dope. We never had that scene of Frack taking that frozen mush and saying, here's your cocaine. Let me get with you. I mean, there was that kind of stuff that I wanted follow up on. It's not that I wanted plots to be revealed or, or definitive answers to Substance D and, and all of that. But it was the fact that there was so much messing around and cars breaking down and this and that. And it doesn't really add up to much other than a good chuckle. 
Now, let me just be very clear here. I love those scenes. I love the scenes when the paranoid scene when they get to the house with the joint thing. And when a minority rider comes in at the end, explains the whole thing. I thought that was paid off. That was fun. Um, mm-hmm. the, the bike scene, entertaining as hell to watch. I had a lot of fun with that. There's a scene with the gun, too, in there with the silencer. Very yeah. fun to watch. I was thinking with the cocaine thing that he was going to say, you know how you have on cooking shows? You have, and I have a, a finished pie here that I prepared before the show so you can see the finished. <laughs> I thought he was going to do that. I thought he was going to say, and here's some of this cocaine I prepared before you got over here to show you how to do it. And he didn't do that either. I was waiting for that. It didn't happen. I hear what Jacob is saying, and I hear what you're saying, Stuart. And you guys are watching this movie differently than I was, I guess. And again, I don't know if it 100% is because you guys have familiarity with the source material. I guess I am watching it a little bit more linear and a little more like a traditional movie, whereas Mm -hmm. I think that's not a crazy way to watch any movie. I think a drug movie is a drug movie is a drug movie, but when you're presenting a movie like this one, when although you have those fantastic scenes, which are very much like the drug movie stuff, they also have other scenes that make it more like a real story plot movie. I didn't think conspiracy at all, by the way, when I was watching this. I wasn't sitting there trying to figure out what Substance D was. I wasn't trying to figure out who Hank's real identity was. But I was figuring things out because I was trying to figure out what was going on with Keanu Reeves' character so much. I was so confused about what was going on with him. So when I was trying to go back and watch this movie and try to figure things out, which I think I did as I as the movie went on, I think because I was able to piece it all together, I was able to enjoy what the director was going for, what the movie was trying to do. Problem here is, it's not that. It's that the movie doesn't allow me to sit back and enjoy it like Jacob did, because it's not giving me, the person who's completely new to this story, to completely new to these characters, any place to really grasp my hands or my feet or plant my feet into and jump off from. And that's a big problem with this movie. It doesn't give people any place to start. I mean, do you think you approach this as science fiction because you knew it was based on Philip K. Dick? No, I did not. I had no idea what to expect going into this one. Only thing I knew about it was it was the rotoscope animation. That's the only thing I knew before I went in. This is why I'm so big on when before you see a movie, don't read reviews. Try to be as spoiler-free as possible. Don't watch as many commercials. Don't watch all the previews. Don't watch all the scenes on Entertainment Tonight. Try to go into a movie you want to see as blind as possible so you can have, you can take the journey the director wants you to take and enjoy the movie. Be able to get captivated into the movie. Maybe you should have watched the trailer, Brock. Maybe I should have done something. <laughs> something to give me some sort of foundation to be able to jump off from to really get this movie. As I'm listening to you two talk about this, I'm not sure I'm wrong here. I think there might be other people out there who had the same experience I had, or maybe worse, watching this movie. It's so great to hear you two being able to get into it, because there's so much good going on here. It's a shame for me that it didn't all gel completely. You you know what, Brock? I'm actually not too surprised with what you're saying. I, I was wondering how this would come off to someone who had not read the book because there was times where I was confused. I felt, did I miss something? And I had read the book and I felt there were certain scenes that didn't quite get explained. You talk about those payoffs and there's certain scenes that don't quite get the payoff that they got in the book. And I'm like, well, does that just come off as some frivolous, you know, oh, we needed to fill up 10 minutes, so we'll throw this scene in there. So I, I'm glad you're expressing this because I, I had these suspicions as I watched this movie. And I think the director wants you to be exasperated. I don't think <laughs> when I saw it it's that all on I, purpose. <laughs> no, no, I, I talk about this in The Aviator as well. You had a character that was having psychotic episodes. The movie is cut to 
exacerbate that. You feel crazy watching him go crazy. And I think that that is also true of Bob Arctor's life is you feel this antagonistic force ping-ponging back and forth and you don't know what the hell is going on and it is. It's it's a trip. It's a rush. It's a crazy thing that it's got you so worked up, Brock, I think was the intent. Now, obviously I don't think the director wanted you to walk away going, I don't like it, but <laughs> but the intent was definitely to have a different effect than a typical science fiction story would have where sure. obviously this were the Hollywood version, the setup would be the whole movie. And then the last 10 minutes would be the middle where he has been put. Let's just get to the end. Bob falls so far down the test come positive results that he's been taking come back positive that he is a substance D addict and he is thrown in new path. The only corporation that's guaranteeing they can get somebody off of the substance and what you find out in the last scenes is, although Bob's mind is totally gone and he's going by a different identity even by the Bruce. end of it, he's going as Bruce. He is a simpleton now that is working on their farms and really impaired, and we're not sure that he's ever coming back. We see Donna, who has an alternate identity as well, talking to one of the orderlies that works at the clinic, and they are working to use him to manipulate Bob, Fred, Bruce, whatever you want to call him, <laughs> to expose the fact that this company is having it both ways. It's getting rich off the fact that it's growing the blue flower that creates substance D, and then it takes in the people after they've had the rush to go work for them and to grow the blue flower. Mm-hmm. It comes back full circle. That would be the Hollywood version of where that happens, and then there would be a new end in which Keanu Reeves would get his mind back. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And the flowers would be destroyed, and, and that would be the traditional way of telling the story. It's really an afterthought that we get any well, of this. It's very rushed, the ending of the movie. And it's not much longer in the book, but there is a little bit more about the recovery process in the book. Well, Stuart, I like that you brought up the Hollywood ending because we, we just did Minority Report. And mm-hmm. that has the Hollywood ending. Sure does. Sure does. The guy that wanted the precogs, he was willing to commit evil to bring about a greater good, and he gets his comeuppance for that. This has a similar, like, I don't know if you want to say moral or whatever, but there's this big discussion between Donna and this undercover orderly about is it fair to you know Fred or Bob or Bruce that we totally sacrificed him to get rid of this drug? And you don't right. see them as – I think it's because it's much more ambiguous. You don't see them as this big evil character like you did in Minority Report. But it's a very similar conundrum, I guess. What is the price of a better society? But this approaches that question very differently than the more Hollywood Minority Report. Yes, I agree. And I do like that little bit of the ending with the blue flower thing. I thought that was a nice way to end it, and I was happy. At the end, they didn't go beyond where they went at the end. I, I liked that they ended there where they ended. The scene with Donna in the diner, that did feel a little Hollywood to me, though. That little diner scene about, oh, this is right to do to these people. It's not really fair to him, really, because that rest of this movie didn't really have much about that at all. Well, we never really understood Donna as a character. We just thought she was a coked-out girl that didn't like to be touched. We had no idea that she would have liked to have been touched, that she okay. really did care for him. Right. But that she couldn't allow him 
to blow her cover. I understand, but that's the first time in this whole movie we're getting anything like that. I like that. That's that's a nice way to conclude, I think. I think we're not going all the way to Minority Report Hollywood ending, but it seemed to me that it's a little more of a light way to end it. I, I think they gave enough information. If they didn't have that scene, this movie would have been way too ambiguous, and you, yes. mm-hmm. you wouldn't know what was going on. I, I think I'm saying the same thing as you, Brock, that maybe it was Hollywood, but it was just Hollywood enough. It, they yeah. didn't go too far. They they gave the viewer just the right amount that they needed to know to get what was going on at the end. I may not have liked all of it, but at least I didn't completely waste my time. So that was good. I have one more scene I want to talk about, and that was the suicide. The, be- the best scene in the movie. Love it. Absolutely. Hands down to me. And it wasn't Robert Downey Jr. scene, surprisingly enough. Well, you talked about the animated Downey Jr., Rory Cochran, who plays Charles Freck. Very yeah. animated face. He doesn't say a lot, but his eyes. I always mm-hmm. notice his eyes whenever he's on screen because they are so big and shifty. And he was in Days Confused. I don't know if you guys remember, but he was the pothead in that one, the, the charming guy Slater. He was a lot of fun to watch in that movie as well. The whole thing with the radio, com- the commentary, loved it. Loved it. I thought there was just so much fun. And it really did help. I think it helped Fred, Bruce, whatever his name <laughs> is, his fall make a little more sense in that this guy is completely tripped out. And at the beginning of the movie, he is where I think we see Keanu's character later in the movie uh, start to go. Right. So it kind of gives us a foundation of what's actually happening to Fred's character. And so the suicide scene, not only is it fun to watch, not only is it well done, <laughs> the alien, <laughs> yes. the whole thing, the whole thing is just so much fun. But it makes complete sense for that character. It makes complete sense for the drug. And it helps me, the viewer, understand more about the deterioration of Fred. Yeah, the hallucination couldn't have been more fun the the alien that comes to read all of his sins like it takes years and years and like when they finally stop it's been like i don't know how many decades and he's like we get to sixth grade the year i discovered masturbation at least i have a good wine i just i thought that was brilliant i mean what a what a fun moment that's almost word for word out of the book as well and i guess based on someone that was very close to philip k dick that's a real story that he managed to find some dark humor into but he it was coming from a place of pain that really yeah a lot a lot of these characters are based on people philip k dick himself and people that he knew i mean this is a very personal story for him and and maybe that's a good place to to bring in i guess i don't know the epilogue yep so i mean at, at the end of the movie you get this note saying hey this is we're not trying to make a statement that drugs are bad it's just that this is what happens when you use them. And then it just has a list of all of Philip K. Dick's friends who were either injured or, or died from drug use. And he actually includes himself because uh, he suffered some ailments. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that was necessary for the end of this movie? Well, I think that it's it comes from a true place. I did not take it to be a lecture or an anti-drug statement. And in fact, if anything, it's a statement of someone saying, maybe my friends shouldn't have messed with drugs. Maybe we shouldn't have done this, but we didn't deserve this. And all we wanted to do was have fun and us wanting to have fun shouldn't have been this punishment. That's the way it comes across to me. Certainly, if you read the full text of it in the story, that's very clearly articulated. And I feel like it comes from a place of knowing. Philip K. Dick knows what he's talking about when he writes this. And I can't begrudge him for saying it. I compliment the filmmakers for including it in the movie. It didn't have to be there. But I thought it was a nice way to bring closure and bring us back to the personal side of the story. 
So, Stuart, Jacob, do you recommend A Scanner Darkly? Stuart. I do, but I, it's not a movie that I can endorse for everyone. I mean, it's, I, it's a qualified one because I feel like I'd have to know the person to know if it's a right fit for them. Did you like the movie Train Spotting? Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Requiem for a Dream. It's that kind of movie. It's not plot-driven. If you don't mind being confused by a plot and just like to feel the way that characters can make you feel in a strange environment, that's what this is. There's really not too much to understand, despite all of the back-and-forth and conspiracies and this person's really that person. That's all incidental. It's all MacGuffin. It's really about a personal story about drug addiction. And it's not my story or experience. I've certainly known people messed up on drugs. It's not my story. I didn't relate to it in that way. But I was touched by it. And I do think even though it may not be a brilliant movie, it may not have done anything new. It's an excellent chapter in Richard Linkletter's work, and I enjoyed experiencing it then for the first time and now rewatching it four years later. Recommend. Jacob. I'm going to recommend this movie. I totally get what Brock's been saying, and I had those same questions going in. How would someone perceive this that didn't know the source material? But I also kind of agree with Stuart that the plot's not the main point here. It's, it's more about a feeling, about an emotion, about an experience. I mean, we didn't even talk about the score here, but that's something like that score. Every the music in this movie, mm-hmm. it affected me so much for some reason. And, and that sticks out just as much as any of the characters here. You get to the end and not that he, you know, unwittingly unveiled this conspiracy. I didn't care about that. It was his state, how brain dead he was, how he would just kind of repeat. And I've known people like that that have used so many drugs that that's how they are now. I did feel sad watching this movie. I mean, mm-hmm. this was very much an emotional experience for me. It, and I like the ideas. I, I felt the script, the screenplay could have been stronger. I wish the Charlie Kaufman version would have been done because I have a feeling that would have fit what this was going for better but i i think this is a movie that you should watch and it's very much one that that's like a mirror you're going to reflect on it and, and see how it affects you but but i think it's it's a mirror you should look at it it's a reflection you should get and then i hope after seeing this if you haven't read the book that you do read it because Stuart will talk all about this on books and but favorite philip k dick story and, and so maybe that does taint my review a bit but yeah i definitely recommend this movie you know, folks, I have recommended much worse movies than this through the course of all our now playing stuff. And that's a shame in in a sense that there's so much good going on here. There's so much good going on here. Some great performances, some fantastic sequences, some great scenes. Uh, just there's so much good here that's going on. But the bottom line is it's confusing. It's not all that entertaining at times. And it, I should not have to rely on outside material to enjoy a movie I'm watching now. And, you know, it's just a shame. Bravo to the cast. Bravo to this director. I love that he had a vision and an idea of presenting this material. Just so much good to compliment this movie about. But can I recommend this to all of our listeners? No, I cannot. If I was as learned and as into Philip K. Dick as other people going into this movie, if I had read this story and liked the adaptation of the story, that's a different story. We're not talking about that. I'm talking about this movie without any outside influences on it. It doesn't completely work. And that's a shame because I wanted to so much get it. I love character dramas. I love good character stories. But sometimes they don't work either. It's all about the great performances. But overall, as a movie, they don't work either. I did not enjoy taking this ride. It's unfortunate because I wanted to. I gave this movie so many chances throughout this 
whatever, 90 minutes or more longer than that because I, I watched a few scenes twice. I came out of this movie frustrated. I came out of this movie disappointed because what I was given at the end of the day didn't add up. When the movie worked, it worked great. But at the end of the day, it doesn't gel. So I, I can't recommend it, but it's it's a heartbreaking not recommend. I really wish I could, but I can't. And it's a shame. So go to our website at nowplayingpodcast.com and download other episodes in this Philip K. Dick retrospective and hear our conversations on that. Or you can hear our conversations on other series we've covered like Karate Kid, Predator, Terminator, Back to the Future. All that can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com as well as a link to our forums where you can discuss this review or discuss your opinions on A Scanner Darkly or any other movie that we've ever reviewed for Now Playing. And if you know if you enjoy this podcast, please go to iTunes and leave us a podcast positive review so other people like yourselves can find us because that's the best advertising you can get is that fans who like the show recommend it to other people okay so what's next guys what, what, where are we heading from here next. what's next <laughs> is, it, is this gonna be uh, who's on first i don't know what's <laughs> routine i predict some comedy i don't know i got a bad feeling about this i got a bad feeling about well, what Nicholas cage i know right we'll see So please join us next time for our next episode in the Philip K. Dick Retrospective. Talk to you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series. Best mind yet. You can find the other episodes of the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series at nowplayingpodcast.com in the archive section, as well as our reviews of other classic movie series including Predator, Terminator, Star Trek, Rambo, The Karate Kid, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. No doubt the precogs have already seen this. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive review on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed can be found at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You can also support Now Playing by making a donation using the donate button at the bottom of our homepage. Your donations help keep Now Playing on the air. We hope you enjoyed the ride! You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post movie mini-reviews, as well as announcements of new episodes. Links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Now Playing presents the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series podcasts are edited by Jay. I've seen every possible ending here. None of them are good for you. The films discussed in this series are the intellectual property of their respective trademark holders, and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinions of Venganza Media Incorporated. The precogs are never wrong, but occasionally they do disagree. Now playing is copyright and trademark Venganza Media Incorporated, 2011, all rights reserved. Did you ever think that perhaps now playing is like just one schizoid voice actor that does all the personalities? I, I just blew everyone's mind. I know exactly, and and I don't know why. As Arnie, I'm so hard on Brock, um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what happens when I argue with myself. Um, what I love it's about the D man, it's the D. <laughs> so I think we should probably go into the plot summary now, and then move on to our thoughts and, and ideas in the film. Should be a short one. Sure. Who's doing it? I thought you were. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I, I'm Jacob, gonna... uh, wait, wait a second. Jacob. <laughs> I was waiting for that. It, it didn't come the first time. <laughs> Maybe you and wanted wa- speed and you got a, a psychotropic <laughs> drug. 
I didn't. Uh, yeah. Oh, I thought you meant maybe I wanted speed the movie. The movie yeah. And no, I'm well, like, yeah. no, I didn't really want that no, going no, into no. here. No Keanu Reeves. I think we're done with him for now. But I um, mean, maybe you wanted an amphetamine, and what you got was a hallucinogen. Um, I don't. I don't know. Um, I, I, perhaps what you're saying is completely accurate, Stuart. But I have no idea. <laughs> um, I haven't done either of those things. 